The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. Before we get our program started, I want to welcome members of our armed forces who are joining us over the Internet. Thank you for your many emails and letters and for taking time to be with us again. In just a moment, former Secretary of Defense and Director of the CIA, Mr. Robert Gates, will be joining us to talk about how Presidents Bush and Obama addressed war and relations with foreign leaders, as well as what growing destabilization abroad means to America. But before Mr. Gates joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Robert Michael Gates was born in Wichita, Kansas. He has been a lifelong member of the Boy Scouts of America and recipient of the Scouts' highest honor as an adult. He graduated from the College of William and Mary with an undergraduate degree in history and obtained his master's degree from Indiana University and his Ph.D. from Georgetown. Mr. Gates was recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency when he was a student at Indiana University. Under the CIA, he was trained and became a second lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force and was assigned to the Strategic Air Command as an intelligence officer. Once his Air Force service concluded, he worked for the CIA as an analyst. From 1974 to 79, Gates joined the National Security Council, and following that, he returned to the CIA to work as director for the Strategic Evaluation Center Office of Strategic Research. Gates' meteoric rise in the CIA was quick and unprecedented, owing to his nonpartisan analysis, direct style, and leadership skills. He was named director of the DCI-DDCI executive staff, followed by deputy director for intelligence, followed by deputy director for Central Intelligence Agency. Wow, that's a mouthful. Mr. Gates retired from the CIA in 1993 to lecture and become the president of Texas A&M. But Washington was far from done with Gates, though he declined the opportunity to become the director of national intelligence and other pleas to return to office. In 2006, the call to duty was too great, and he accepted and was unanimously confirmed as secretary of defense in the Bush administration. And when President Barack Obama took office, he was quick to announce that Secretary Gates would again be called to service. Gates remains the only Secretary of Defense in our nation's history to serve two contiguous administrations. Under Obama, Gates oversaw the withdrawal of troops from Iraq, troop surge in Afghanistan, and was uh, the leading proponent of shifting the military budget toward 21st century weaponry. He was also one of the leaders photographed in the Situation Room when Osama bin Laden was brought to justice. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, former Secretary of Defense and Director of the CIA, Mr. Robert Gates. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Gates. It's my pleasure. Well, there were certainly a lot of nervous Nellies in Washington prior to the release of your book, Duty, Memoirs of a Secretary at War. And most of the hubbub seemed to center around the fact that you chose to speak about your experience with a president, cabinet, and Congress that is still currently in office. So let me ask you about that first. Was there any reason to wait? Well, I thought that a lot of the problems that I write about in the book, whether it's getting the defense budget uh, under control, uh, decisions in terms of how to deal with China, how to deal with Russia, uh, relationships um, with uh, between the executive branch and the Congress, the need for reform in the way the Congress deals with uh, defense issues, the need for reform inside the Department of Defense. It seemed to me that all of these things were contemporary problems, uh, and it didn't make any sense at all to uh, to wait until 2017 to write about them. 
It took a great deal of courage, uh, I think, not to wait. But uh, it's also consistent with your uh, philosophy of duty and uh, and being of service to the nation. Now, I host a nonpartisan program, and I tell our listeners that I'm an independent precisely because I see equal room for improvement on both sides of the aisle. And, and so your book served to reinforce my belief that we don't seem to have leaders or systems in place which put what is good for the country and the planet ahead of all else. So when the only Secretary of Defense to serve two administrations in a row and to have served, what is it, six presidents, uh, says the bureaucracy and gridlock is intolerable and is destroying us, uh, don't you run the risk of uh, alienating both sides of the aisle in one full blow? Well, to tell you the truth, I don't. I don't think it uh, takes much courage to to write such a book if you have no desire ever to go back to Washington D.C. again. Well, there you go. You had yeah, you yeah, you had nothing to lose. Well, and and I you know I I thought I think it's important to sort of lay bare um, the the impact on our military and of our men and women in uniform and of our ability even. Uh, to conduct defense policy, much less a war or two wars, um, given the partisan divide in Congress and the and the polarization that has uh, significant led significantly to paralysis. I just as an example, between 2007 and 2011, I submitted five defense budgets to the Congress, and not once did I get an appropriations bill out of Congress before the start of a new fiscal year. So. The, and and oftentimes my budget would be released to me a couple of months at a time in terms of funding the wars and so on. And it's for people who want to see a more efficient and uh, and um, more cost effective uh, Department of Defense. Uh, that certainly doesn't doesn't help uh, when you when you get right down to it. Now, did you ever get to the bottom of that? Did you ever get an explanation on why you just couldn't have a, a full budget at, before we entered war? Oh, it was just it was just the partisan divide, and and particularly on the war in Iraq in two thousand seven, um, the the partisan divide between the Republicans and the Democrats was just so deep, and the defense budget was a was a weapon in that war, and one of the reasons why um, we kept uh, getting delays in in the funding was because. The Democrats wanted to use the budget to force the president to change his policies in Iraq, and the president wasn't about to change his policies in Iraq, change the surge or draw it down before it had hardly even gotten there. And the result was uh, was gridlock up on the hill. So you know, but it comes to it comes to more basic things, and we've seen it just in the last couple of weeks. I mean, here the Department of Defense put forward some pretty sensible uh, reforms and changes in terms of. Cutting overhead, uh, getting rid of uh, outdated weapon systems, uh, closing some facilities, and so on, and the Congress rejected them all, and and wants to pretend that uh, they can cut the defense budget while not allowing the Defense Department to make the kind of sensible cuts that'll protect our military capabilities. So it's that kind of of parochialism. It's not just partisanship. It's parochialism. No member of Congress. Well, let me put it another way. Every member of Congress is in favor uh, of cutting the defense budget, just not any program or contract in his district or state. Well, and you do make a a serious point of the fact that uh, when it came to protecting uh, budgets for their individual programs in individual states, uh, people would fight to the death for it. But one of the most uh, startling points that you make in your book is that – you did not seek out this job, Secretary of Defense, nor did you necessarily want it or enjoy it. In fact, this was a very difficult assignment for you, and you struggled with sending, uh, making decisions to send men and women into harm's way. Uh, and at the same time, you were working with leaders who were seemed unable to make any connection between the decisions, budgetary or otherwise, they were making and the fact that father, fathers and mothers and sons and daughters were going to die because of those decisions. Well, I think a good example of this occurred in March of 2011 when I asked the, our appropriations and uh, armed services committees 
to approve a transfer of money from building more Humvees, the Jeep-like vehicles for the Army, which the Army didn't want any more of, uh, in order to pay for additional intelligence and reconnaissance capabilities that the commanders in Afghanistan had requested. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the one committee of Congress blocked it. It turned out the committee of chairman had received $80,000 in campaign contributions from the maker of the Humvee. So well, now we're going to get into that a little deeper in the next segment, but we have to take a scheduled break here. But stay right where you are. We'll be right back with more from Secretary Robert Gates. You're listening to the Costa Report. Did you know that every day we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone? This data comes from everywhere and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's big data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM big data platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start, it matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. Every day our world gets more complicated. Not only is new information coming at us faster than we can manage, new regulations, technology, and the effects of globalization have made it much more difficult to succeed. That's why I wrote The Watchman's Rattle, a book that, for the first time, explains how complexity makes it hard to separate facts from fiction and eventually causes us to make important decisions based on unproven beliefs. And not just us, our leaders also fall prey to this phenomena. But here's the good news. Once you know the symptoms to watch for, you can safeguard against them. So please, go to RebeccaCosta.com. That's RebeccaCosta.com. And order your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It only takes a few minutes and the shipping is free. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Do it now. You'll be glad you did. Greetings, folks. This is Randy the Realtor. You may have heard my ads before on this station, and I'm here to tell you that MZ is right. He doesn't let stupid people listen to his radio station. Everyone who called me because they heard my radio spots have been very intelligent and wonderful people that I was glad to even have had a conversation with. A couple of my most recent contacts are Lewis and Susan. They recently opened an antique clock shop in Aptos on the corner of Trout Gulch and Soquel Drive. Go by and visit them. If you need a nice antique clock or need one repaired, stop in and see them. If you need to buy or sell a home, give me a call. I'll make your transaction run like clockwork. Call Randy the Realtor at 831-566-2590. That's 831-566-2590. Or visit my website at aptoshomefinder.com. Shirtcrafter, your one-stop print shop, has been locally owned and operated in Santa Cruz for a decade, providing custom design services to help you build your brand. Shirtcrafter provides top-of-the-line custom screen printing, digital printing, embroidery, stickers, banners, business cards, and so much more. They carry top-quality brands of gear from T-shirts and polos to sweatshirts and ball caps. Whether you're outfitting your softball team or team building for your business, Shirtcrafter has it all. So build your brand with Shirtcrafter, located at 111 Ingalls Street in Santa Cruz, or go to www.shirtcrafter.com. Or you could give them a call at 831-423-0537. That's Shirtcrafter, 831-423-0537.
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former Secretary of Defense, Mr. Robert Gates. And before the break, we were talking about the fact that you were making requests for additional budgets for military intelligence and Humvees and other things that would protect our soldiers and getting turned down because certain leaders had received campaign contributions from companies whose interests were not served by some of your requests. So, so here you are. On, on the one hand, ordering soldiers to put their life on the line. And on the other hand, uh, in your book, uh, you're listening to President Obama say that he does not trust his generals. And, uh, and you have Harry Reid ask you to include a study on irritable bowel syndrome in the defense budget. It, it must have felt surreal. <laughs> well, welcome to Washington. Uh, there, there, there is a certain surreal aspect to it, um, uh, but you know that's that's our that's our system of government. And uh, you know, I, I always like to tell people, you know, one of the objectives of the founders was not to make government efficient; it was to protect liberty. And uh, so they created a system that, frankly, uh, depends on compromise um, to work. And and I think one of the things that has declined in the in recent years. Uh, I actually worked for eight presidents, so I started under Lyndon Johnson. And you know we've always had partisan politics, and our politics have always been ugly. But at the end of the day, there have been enough people on the Hill that have been willing to make compromises to move the public's business forward, and that's what this willingness to compromise uh, is what has declined in recent years and to the point where compromise means selling out and and people seem to need to go back to seventh grade history and study the constitution to realize that that um, that without compromise we do end up with paralysis and and in some ways maybe that's a good thing in terms of limiting the power of government but on the other uh, there is the people's business that needs to be done whether it's defense or air traffic control or uh um, the national parks or a hundred other things and, and not being able to get those things uh, funded, not to be able to address some of our more far-reaching problems, uh, I think is a, is a real uh, problem for the country. And, and I, my own view is that part of the problem is that too many members of Congress, contrary to the expectations of the founding fathers, have become careerists. They're not people who who were successful in private life or in as lawyers or farmers or business people or um, doctors or anybody like that. They're, they're basically career politicians. And once they get into Congress, their primary objective is to stay there. And so reelection uh, is the f- first priority for them. And anything that gets in the way of that um, is something that they're going to oppose. And I think that that has contributed uh, to the kind of uh, both the polarization and the paralysis that we see. Well, I can't think of anything worse than paralysis when it comes to uh, decisions affecting our military or our security. I mean, uh, paralysis and gridlock can't be good. Some of these decisions, they have to be made in very short order. And um, uh, and, I, and I think you, you greatly diminished the effectiveness of generals and the Secretary of Defense at all branches of, uh, of security for the nation. If, if they don't have uh, clear budgets, they don't have clear authority, and they certainly don't have the trust of the president. Well, I think that, I think that the, uh, with respect to the latter, it really was, I think, a matter of President Obama being suspicious that the generals were trying to box him in on uh, troop increases in Afghanistan. That was the primary area where I saw it. And I did my best to try and persuade him that they were just making, you know, agree with them or not, they were making honest recommendations and that they weren't, they, there was no conspiracy to try and back him into a corner. Uh, but as I write in the book, uh, frankly, I didn't have much. I didn't have much luck in assuaging his concerns. And and uh, as I write, there there were some things said and done by by some senior military officers that I think contributed to his suspicion of going out of them going out and saying things in public. That if you if you were sitting in the White House, looked an awful lot like you were trying to put pressure on the president of the United States to make a decision one way or the other. 
So this wasn't entirely a one-way street, but it did contribute to suspicion on the part of, of the president as to their motives uh, and their recommendations. I will say this, both President Bush and President Obama, like many of their predecessors as president, were willing to overrule the military when they thought the military was wrong. And frankly, that's what civilian control of our military is all about. And in virtually every case, I supported the president because I thought he was right. Well, we've had this, you know, I'm a great student of history, and we've had this before. At one point, Eisenhower was very concerned with the recommendations on nuclear weaponry from uh, his military. Uh, But, you know, rather than think that they were conspiring in some way, uh, which they certainly weren't, uh, he brought in uh, uh, specialists in um, nuclear weaponry and and, uh, and in in physics, basically, to come into the White House and, uh, and discuss and educate him uh, so that he could make better decisions. But I don't think it ever amounted to conspiracy. Could could you tell the story? We've got a few minutes here before we have to go to break. Could you tell the story of going to Nancy Pelosi to talk about ground conditions in Iraq? Because I think our audience would like to hear about that. Well, I basically, after the, after the surge had been underway, uh, the uh, it seemed to me, and, and I think to almost everyone, that in fact that the surge had worked, that uh, security had returned to um, broad stretches of Iraq, uh, that uh, stability had been restored to the country. Uh, you know, it wasn't perfect by any means, but there had been dramatic progress. And 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 then um, somewhat the president went ahead and and he announced a timetable for withdrawal. He announced uh, that tr- the troops would begin to w- be withdrawn and, and on what kind of a schedule. Uh, and uh, and at what point our participation in Iraq would end. And I went to uh, the speaker and uh, Speaker Pelosi and I said, look, the president has essentially done what you all have been asking him to do uh, for for a couple of years. He's set a timetable for withdrawal. Uh, he's set uh, the circumstances for that. And, and he has uh, essentially agreed to do most of the things that you all have been asking him to do. Uh, and, and so this is an opportunity for bipartisan support to see if we can end this on a different and in this war on a different and better note here at home uh, than has been the case since 2003 and and she wasn't interested uh, she was very partisan about the war and and uh, no matter what happened on the ground uh, she was not prepared to concede that anything uh, positive had happened in Iraq and I understand the strong feelings about that and it had been a very partisan issue um, on the Hill uh, and had become even more so. But she and I actually had a pretty good relationship, and, and she would often invite me to breakfast uh, on the Hill, and often just two of us. And we always had a very civil relationship, but on, on this particular issue where I tried to put forward a bipartisan approach trying to end this war, she wasn't interested. Well, it, this definitely comes across in your book that you wanted to provide a balanced perspective on the war, and uh, there was just there was no no takers for that, um, and that's unfortunate. Now we have to take another short break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about trust and duty. You're listening to the Costa Report. Now, if you've been listening to the Costa Report, you know that I'm a big fan of wines by Caraccioli Cellars, and today I'm here with Scott Caraccioli who's one of the brains behind the most memorable wines money can buy. So I have a question for you. How did your family get into the wine business? Um, You know, 2006, my father, his brother and uncle were really playing with the idea of planting a vineyard and planting a vineyard turned into making a bottle, turned into making sparkling wine when um, Michelle came into the picture. So it was really kind of an organic situation, us being in agriculture in the Salinas Valley, and then the extension of that went to grapes, and here we are today. To find out more about Caraccioli Wines, visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown Carmel, California. That's Caraccioli Cellars, C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I, Cellars, where one bottle is never enough. As with so many things you hear, there's another side to the story. Like Marshall Tuck's campaign for superintendent of public instruction. 
Here's the big problem. Records prove that after a year of running the partnership for L.A. schools, Marshall Tuck was hit with a resounding vote of no confidence from teachers in eight of his ten schools. No confidence is Tuck's real record in education. That's why Californians can be confident with former teacher Tom Torlakson as our superintendent. Torlakson's working to guarantee spending decisions about our education tax dollars are made by the local community and not by Sacramento politicians. The same Tom Torlakson who passed the Career Readiness Initiative, helping schools expand job and technical training, because Tom Torlakson knows a well-rounded education is the best way to keep California public schools moving forward. Paid for by Torlakson for Superintendent of Public Instruction 2014. Major funding by California Teachers Association, Independent Expenditure Committee, and California State Council of Service Employees Political Committee. Not authorized by a candidate or candidate's committee. Hi, everyone. This is Kay Swirling. MZ and I are quite proud of the station you're listening to. Quite frequently, I meet people who express their appreciation for KSCO, one of the few remaining independent, locally owned radio voices left in our country. Of course, this is gratifying, but it's very important that you understand and keep in mind that KSCO is made possible by three things. Advertising sales, book, hat, bag, and other KSEO gear sales, and in particular, longevity health product sales. You see, every time somebody in our audience purchases longevity products such as Beyond Tangy Tangerine or the Healthy Start Pack, that person is directly supporting our operation and making it possible for us to continue to serve our community. We feel good about recommending these products because they are of the highest quality and they do work. I know because I take these products every day and I can enthusiastically vouch for their goodness and effectiveness. I first heard Dr. Wallach's message about taking charge of your health through nutrition nearly 20 years ago. I strongly believe in nutritional supplementation over toxic prescription drugs and invite you to help yourself and help KSCO and KOMY by trying and using these products as I do. Visit kscoteam.com or kscohealth.com or call one of your local longevity distributors. For KSCO and KOMY, this is Case Whirling. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and today we're speaking with former Secretary of Defense, Mr. Robert Gates. And earlier you were pointing out that, uh, in your view, the defense of the country is not a partisan issue. And part of your responsibility was to present a balanced view on ground conditions and what had been achieved uh, and also what was needed to further succeed. But in addition to partisan leadership, you also point to the fact that uh, the Pentagon has become so bureaucratic and so burdened with procedures and regulations that it's it's hard to be as responsive as they need to be. Is that right? Well, it's right, and and a big part of it is the Pentagon's own fault and and the uh, failure to uh, bring about institutional reform. Uh, but a part of it also is uh, the micromanagement by the Congress. So the defense, of, the defense uh, uh, authorization bill each year, uh, which provide, which authorizes various activities by the Department of Defense, mm-hmm. is about a thousand pages long, and and for the most part, it's a thousand pages of requesting reports of. Uh, uh, limiting certain kinds of activities, uh, regulating other kinds of activities, and and it's important to understand these are also cumulative. So every year there's another thousand pages of micromanagement and telling the Department of Defense how to do its business. And of course, it reflects the interests of every member of the Armed Services Committees. And uh, and so that let's just say that doesn't make the job of trying to reform the Pentagon any easier. 
Well, this is just a thicket of complexity that grows worse with every single year. And uh, it's such a systemic problem. I mean, it it even goes so far as to explain uh, what happened in Benghazi. I mean, I know somebody wants to pin it on some leader, but uh, having been in Washington and worked in Washington for a while, I I have to say that there are other explanations for Benghazi that uh, have to do with systemic uh, overwhelm, if you will. Well, <clears throat> let me let me be clear. One of the reasons I wrote the book is because everybody and I earlier in this interview talked about the paralysis in Washington. But mm-hmm. the reality is, I made it work. Uh, in 2009, I cut nearly three dozen major defense programs. Had they been built to completion, <clears throat> it would have cost the taxpayers about $330 billion. Yes, you did. Overcost, overdue, and and had obsolete technologies or there was no longer a requirement. And then in 2010, I cut $180 billion in overhead over the, over the ensuing 10 years. So you can do these things. And I, on the cuts of those programs, by the way I did it and with the support of the president, we got the Congress to acquiesce in or support every single one of those. None of my predecessors had been able to do that. So if you have the right approach, if you have a strong partnership with the president, he's willing to wield the veto, and you have some allies on Capitol Hill, you can make these things work. And that's one of the important reasons I wrote the book was to show that if you have the right skill set and if you have the right support, you can reform these bureaucracies and make them per- and make them do better and and save money for the taxpayers. But you need to have leaders who are willing to put duty above all things. Well, that's absolutely right. And if you and you know, if you don't have people that are working for the greater good, but instead are working for other agendas which you kind of I mean, this book it, I, I tell you, uh, my neck is hurting from shaking my head as I read this book. <laughs> I just I just kept shaking my head and saying, this can't be right. And of course, it's right. Uh, but, you know, I, I wanted this to I, I would have felt better if you had put this in the fiction section of the bookstore. Uh, very disturbing and and confirming what a lot of Americans think, but uh, but don't have anybody to tell them that what they're thinking is not imaginary. It's it's actually taking place. Um, y- you point out that uh, well, let's talk about this thing called duty. Uh, is duty something in your DNA? Is it something you grow up with? Is it a sense that you, you, you're capable of putting the greater good ahead of all else? Well, I think that I think that it um, it is it is a potential component of everybody's DNA. I mean, every single man and woman out there wearing a uniform, uh, uh, American military uniform, has a sense of duty. Every every uh, first responder, policeman, fireman, and others have a sense of duty. Uh, I think a lot, you know, many, many, obviously many, many teachers. So, so there are a lot of people out there, I think, who have a sense of duty. There are a lot of people in business and elsewhere have a sense of duty to their communities and they contribute in various ways. So, but are they in our nation's capital? Well, in our nation's capital, I, again, I think that particularly among the career people, uh, both civilians and military, I think that there is a strong sense of duty. I think a lot of politicians come to Washington with a sense of duty, but in the course of, of staying there, and particularly if they stay there a long time, uh, I think that that they begin to confuse their their own self-interest with the interests of the country, and they lose sight of their duty to the country. Now, I wasn't going to ask you this, but we have this argument regularly around the radio studio here. You can probably tell we have a lot of opinionated people at this studio. And uh, every time the midterm elections come around or a presidential election, uh, there's a huge contingency here that says uh, vote out the incumbents. Very easy. We don't want career politicians because look what happens. It it engenders gridlock. That's what happens. Uh, What would you say? Would you be in favor of that solution? Well, you know, I have I have always opposed term limits because <clears throat> because I once you get rid of members of Congress who have expertise, 
then the real influence and power goes to the lobbyists, the congressional staffers, and the permanent bureaucracy in Washington. The problem is, how do you balance that with people who become so preoccupied with saving their seat in Congress that they lose sight of what's in the public interest? Uh, you know, I, I used to tell people we have term limits. They're called elections. But the truth is, because of gerrymandering and um, redistricting, the way it gets done, mm-hmm. all but about, you know, got 435 seats in the House of Representatives, all but about 50 or 60 of those because of gerrymandering, are now completely safe for either a Republican or a Democrat. They almost run unopposed. And under those circumstances, then I think you begin to think, well, maybe we should have term limits. You know, some of the states, my own state of Washington, for example, has done something that I think helps mitigate that, and that is the open primary, where where everybody runs and the top two vote-getters um, are the ones who appear on the ballot in November. So you could have two Democrats or two Republicans or two independents or whatever, but it means that you have to reach beyond your party's most hardcore base, the most ideologically committed. You have to reach out to the center, and you have to reach out to people who may have different points of view if you want to come in first or second. That's a lot faster way to try and deal with this problem than to try and fix the redistricting problem. So you're in favor of open primaries because you feel that that will offer more choice. I think it does. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a lot faster than trying to fix the redistricting problem, which could take decades. Yeah, I, I agree it could. But, you know, on the other hand, I, I argue that the problems that we face today are so much more complex that the idea that you send someone in with no experience uh, really puts makes the country vulnerable. And, you know, it's interesting, the same people who say vote out all the incumbents, uh, I say, well, y- you did that when you elected President Obama. You know, he, he wasn't the most experienced candidate, but, you ele- you know, th- there, there's an example of what happens, right? So uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm on both sides of the fence here. I, I think it, I think you said it earlier. You've got you've to strike a balance. You want some senior members with experience, but are going to put the greater good ahead of private agendas. And on the other well, hand, you've got to have new people coming in as well with fresh ideas, and you don't want all career politicians. Now, we have to take our last break, and we'll be right back with Secretary Gates. You're listening to the Costa Report. Did you know that every day we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone? This data comes from everywhere and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's big data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM big data platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start, it matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. The crisis in the Ukraine is the latest global conflict to pit the United States against Vladimir Putin's Russia. While the Cold War may have ended, U.S.-Russia diplomacy is here to stay. Understanding this volatile new era is not easy. For many years, experts have been trying to explain Russia's new leadership, but cracking the inner circle has remained elusive until now. The American Program Bureau represents some of the most knowledgeable and prominent Russian insiders who are available to speak to your organization. Experts such as Mikhail Gorbachev former leader of the Soviet Union and master architect of modern-day Russia, Vladimir Posner, the dean of Russian journalism, Andrei Kosarev, the first foreign minister under Boris Yeltsin, and Pavel Palashenko, chief advisor for 25 years to Gorbachev, are available to speak at your next event. 
No Speakers Bureau offers greater insights into how Russia impacts our economy, our world, and our lives. To schedule these esteemed leaders for your next event, contact the American Program Bureau at 800-225-4575 or apbspeakers.com. The Redwood Mountain Fair is coming May 31st and June 1st to Roaring Camp in Felton. This family-friendly event presents 22 bands featuring Lucas Nelson and P.O.T.R., Hot Buttered Rum, Pimps of Joy Time, Roy Rogers and the Delta Rhythm Kings, Sherry Austin with Hen House, Florida Kanya, John Craigie, The Chop Tops, and more. Enjoy a weekend of music, local food, wine, microbreweries, arts and crafts, and a kids' area. Proceeds from the fair benefit local nonprofit organizations. Tickets and info at redwoodmountainfair.com. Hello? Hi, Grandma. No, Grandma, I can't fix your computer. I'm sorry it's so slow, but I don't know what to do with it. You clicked on what? You better call user-friendly computing, because I can fix any PC, Mac, or laptop. They'll even come to your house and pick it up. But if you bring it to the shop, they'll give you a free $50 diagnostic just for saying you heard their ad on KSCO. No, Grandma. Downloading that free internet software won't save you time or money. Let's face it. Most of your computer problems these days start with the user being tricked into clicking on a link that contains a path to computer hell. User-friendly computing will have you back on track fast. User-friendly computing is locally owned at 505 River Street across from Gateway Plaza. Or you can give them a call at 831-423-9653. That's 831-423-9653. This is Sylvia Panetta. Join us for the final event of the Leon Panetta 2014 Lecture Series. On Monday, June 2nd, Secretary Panetta will focus on how presidents make decisions, leadership, crisis, politics, and trust. With David Axelrod, Erskine Bowles, Andrew Card, and Kenneth Duberstein, how does a president deal with crises in politics while maintaining the trust of the people? Join us Monday, June 2nd, 7 p.m., KSCO. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Mr. Robert Gates. And I think you wanted to say something more about the midterm elections and how open primaries may be the fastest way to uh, solve these redistricting issues. I was just going to echo what you were saying, that uh, that I'm of two minds on this as well, because it is important to have uh, members of Congress who have experience in these areas, and frankly, as a citizen, I want them to have that experience because otherwise they can't effectively exercise their oversight role. So, you know, I I uh, I point to people like Senator Sam Nunn, Democrat of Georgia, who was chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee for many years and was a real expert. Uh, frankly, uh, California's Diane Feinstein, uh, I think, has been a very good chairman of the Senate Intelligence uh, Oversight Committee. So having these more senior members who've been around and have and have some experience, I think, has has great value. They're they're equal number on the Republican side. But but particularly in the House, how you figure out to uh First of all, get past the uh, the partisanship created by uh, the gerrymandering, and and how you get past the careerism, which frankly applies to both houses, I think is a problem we have to figure out as a country. Now we've been talking about your book, Duty: Memoirs of a Secretary at War, and the importance of duty and trust and character and. One of the places we learn these things at a young age is from organizations like the Boys and Girls Club or the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. And I I know you've been associated with the Boy Scouts since you were a child, and you now serve as a national president. And recently, uh, you came out saying that in addition to the Scouts having decided to include gay youths, uh, you would have gone further and included gay scoutmasters. So it seems as though you're encouraging the Scouts to move toward a big tent philosophy, which is much more inclusive of our youth. Is that right? Well, I I, uh, I think I can fairly say that I played an important role in opening both CIA and our military services to uh, service by um, our gay citizens. And I, as I said in the speech, I applauded the decision by the scouts to uh, encourage gay youth to uh, join the movement. 
Uh, the reality is, though, that, that our movement is deeply divided over whether to uh, allow gay adults. And, and I have a very practical uh, point of view. My personal view is, as you say, I would have gone further. But uh, I now lead an organization that is comprised entirely of volunteers. Uh, two-thirds of our scout troops are sponsored by churches. And to move further at this point would deeply divide and I think probably permanently fracture the scouting movement. So my view is, at least during the time I'm president, which is two years, we need to focus on uh, regaining our unity, focusing on the program, and focusing on making scouting as uh, as exciting and as attractive to um, uh, boys and young men as we possibly can, as as what I believe is the finest organization in the country for uh, building character and, and leaders for tomorrow, in addition to being a lot of fun. Well, you and I are certainly on the same page. Uh, I believe there's plenty of divisiveness and polarization, and I don't need to be taking up issues that uh, continue to, uh, you know, advance that. Uh, I think we need more unity, and uh, and I really do appreciate the position that you've taken with the Scouts. It seems these days enrollment in the Scouts and other youth organizations, which help to develop these core values of duty, trust, honor, um, the enrollment is down. So to bring our conversation full circle, where, where do we get our ideas of duty and trust and responsibility? Where'd you get yours? Well, I think they come, first of all, from the family. They come from um, an understanding from the family, from schools, from church, um, and from organizations like the Boy Scouts and the Boys and Girls Clubs and other organizations that that are reminders that we have obligations as citizens as well as rights as citizens, and those obligations involve duty. They involve giving something back to the community, the state, and the country uh, that provides you with uh, the freedoms that that we that provides us with the freedoms we all have. So I think it comes from uh, multiple parts. It's really part of the whole growing up process. Uh, and frankly, I would say one of the encouraging things, I, I now serve as the chancellor of the College of William & Mary, and, and based on my experience as president of Texas A&M, I'm really encouraged by the, the magnitude of volunteerism that is going on in our colleges and universities across the country today. These young people are far more engaged in public service and tutoring underprivileged kids and volunteering for hospitals and doing a lot of things like that in the community that frankly did not happen when I was going to college nearly 50 years ago. So I take real heart from that, that these young people see the need to to give back and that they do have a duty uh, to their communities. So as we look forward to the midterm elections, what characters should, uh, you know, what characteristics should we be looking for in our leaders? Because it, it sure seems like we could use a little education from you here. Well, I, based on my experience, it's, I mean, people need to have their own ideology and their own point of view on issues. But I think, I think if, if, if I were to ask people to do one thing, it would be to ask people, are you prepared to go back to Washington and help make decisions that move the country forward? Are you willing to reach across the aisle and come up with solutions to problems rather than just sitting back there screaming at each other? Uh, I, I think that every, you know, everybody should have a political point of view, and whether you're conservative or liberal or whatever. But uh, uh, the way I like to put it is that I've worked for eight presidents and I didn't know any uh, that had a monopoly on revealed truth. And I think it's important for people that we elect uh, to not be uh, so uh, self-centered that they think they have all the answers and that all the answers they have are the only right answers to solving our problems. So the question I would ask of candidates, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, are are you prepared to go back there and work to help solve our problems, or are you just going to go back there and be part of the yelling? Well said. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. If they don't have the skills or tolerance uh, to be able to listen to the other side and figure out where the common ground is, uh, then you can't move forward because, uh, gr- you know, gridlock and opposition is the same as paralysis. And uh, so we need leaders that can talk, 
that can get along and, um, you know, and frankly, leaders with some business experience because you can't get away with doing nothing in business. So uh, that wouldn't hurt us very much either. Well, we are out of time, but uh, before we say goodbye, I do want to take this opportunity to thank you for your book. It's an important book, and I hope our listeners will go out and get it. I promise you your neck will be hurting, shaking your head back and forth as you read it. Uh, And also, uh, I want to thank you for your service to our nation. Thank you, Mr. Gates. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure, sir, and I hope you'll come back and see us again soon. If your station is leaving us after this hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Robert Gates, you can drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and also at our website at RebeccaCosta.com on our contact page. And if you missed any part of today's interview, you can listen to the full program on Apple iTunes, Podbean, Voice America, and also the Costa Report website. Just click on the guest photograph and listen anytime from the convenience of your computer or mobile device. And while you're at our website, be sure to visit our new bookstore page where you'll not only find Mr. Gates' book, Duty, for sale, you can also pick up a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, a book that shows how complexity and bureaucracy lead to gridlock and also a mass confusion between facts and unproven beliefs, which also includes dogma and uh, ideology. Um, Over time, these unproven beliefs shape public policy, and policy becomes increasingly irrational, leading to the collapse of entire civilizations. This reoccurring pattern has been identified and chronicled in the Watchman's Rattle. So if you don't have a copy yet, be sure to get one. And if you already have a copy, get one for a friend. Just as Gates opens our eyes to what goes on behind the scenes when our country goes to war, the Watchman's Rattle will open your eyes as to how and why great civilizations decline and eventually disband. So go to RebeccaCosta.com now and get your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. My guest next week is Congressman Tom McClintock, who faces an unusual challenge in the upcoming midterm election. He'll be with us to talk about immigration, pro-growth budgeting, and whether people should come before fish during periods of extreme drought. Don't miss a frank conversation with Congressman Tom McClintock next week, right here on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for a second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 